Welcome to episode 161 of the Rugby League Republic podcast with your hosts, Tish and Dr. T. In this episode of the podcast, we discuss the NRL's new television deal, anti-vax gate, and so much more. Join us as we build a rugby league community for all. The Rugby League Republic podcast starts right now. Welcome to episode 161 of the Rugby League Republic podcast, where we aim to bring you the everyday fans' perspective on the greatest game of all, Rugby League. This is Rugby League for the people. I'm your co-host, Dr. T. Joining me is Tish. Tish, how are you going? It's our uh, 161st episode. We are back to our regular, uh, regular shenanigans, this time fortnightly during the COVID crisis. Uh, <laughs> yeah. How are you going? I am going well, Dr. T. Uh, look, it is a tough road at the moment. Um, you know, we're, we're like two weeks away. I feel like I'm climbing Mount Everest here. As, you know, as we get closer and closer to the NRL season, you think, okay, we're almost there, we're almost there. But then another scandal, another, you know, gate uh, we have to come across, uh, you know, some more uh, craziness happens as we're climbing to the summit in the apex. But I'm doing well. And, uh, you know, I've got to say, last week I really enjoyed our very special uh, look back at the 1999 to George of Dragons. I thought it was a great episode. Uh, any uh, any, any uh, thoughts that you had? Any uh, more thoughts you had from uh, last week's game, uh, last week's uh, podcast? Yeah, no, look, I think uh, we've got some good feedback uh, about, uh, you know, about the fact that we're doing something different, which we're very happy mm. about. Uh, you know, we thought we'd, we'd kick off. This was before, this is pre-COVID, everyone. This We're not doing this because of COVID. I know some people yep. are kind of going, uh, you know, well, those lucky enough to still have a job or something, then, you know, at home doing stuff and just think, oh, Maybe I'll take up uh, learning, uh, you know, how to cook or something. You know, like uh, some people are deciding to do it, but we had already decided we want to do something different. So we've got two new series. For those of you who don't know, uh, please uh, make sure you check out some of our previous episodes in the last couple of months because what we've done is we've got the Almost Fairy Tales uh, new series as well, which is really, really good, where we look at a team uh, who almost reached a fairy tale and it was almost a you know a dream come true but something happened at the very end uh, that didn't quite make it come true and you know the, the the kind of the near misses the almost fairy tales as we call it so that's a really exciting kind of new series that we're putting together uh and also the other one is the greatest rivalries and we've already uh talked about a few um you know our my favorite one the eels and the bulldogs was the first cab off the rank but uh, we also tackled the big one, the ARL versus Super League War, which is probably one of the greatest rivalries in rugby league history that you can ever think of uh, and has done so much uh, sort of ha- had so much impact on the game uh, that we play today and that we, we watch and we love today. So, um, yeah, we're very, very proud of those two new series. We, we've been getting good feedback. So, yeah, please, if you haven't already, yeah. check it out, download, uh, give us your thoughts, send us your thoughts. Uh 
you know, for those of you who don't know, we usually do this at the end, but we may as well do it at the beginning as well. We can be uh, we you, we can be communicated to. You can catch us on a few little different platforms. Uh, catch us on Facebook. Obviously, uh, we've got a Facebook group going, uh, but also we're, we've kickstarted a Twitter account, which is uh, you know kind of new. We're kind of learning about it, but um, you know we're trying to uh, you know get as many many people listening to our podcast as possible, but also interested in the game in general. So we're just starting all these things up. So please bear with us. But if you are a fan, check us out on Twitter and please check us out on Facebook as well. Yeah. Uh, Very much appreciated. Now, Dr. uh, T, I might have to do a quick shout out if you don't mind. Sorry for interrupting. Uh, But on Sunday's footy show, the great Peter Sterling was actually interviewing Bill Harrigan, and he mentioned the '99 Grand Final, and because uh, wow. he asked, he, he asked Bill Harrigan, "Is there any decisions you regret? Uh, you know, like for instance, the '99, uh, you know, Digital World Dragons." So I think secretly, Sterlo might actually be a listener. So you know, Peter Sterling, if you're listening to the show, send us an email, confirm our suspicion that you're that you're listening. Um, and, well, and follow, and we'll, uh, we'll follow us on Twitter if you're not on Twitter follow already. Twitter. Yeah, that's right. Yeah, that's please right. do yeah. because that would be amazing to know that my yeah. my childhood hero in the Eels, Peter Sterling, no less, yes. follows us on or at least knows about us. Let, let's just mm. let's just set our sights low, Tish. At least has he heard of us? That's the yeah. first thing. Then he can that's follow us thing, later. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. And, and look, <laughs> and I, I've got to say, I actually call him the unofficial. Immortal. I've always uh, referred to him like that. Um, sometimes I call him like you know, like the secret immortal. It's almost like nobody knows that he's actually an immortal, but he's he's probably the greatest halfback of all time. Um, so, and you know, he's a, a wonderful human being. Uh, you know, philanthropist and uh, a really top bloke. So, um, you know, we're building a shrine for Sterle here. So, uh, yeah, it would be good. It'd be good to find out if 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 we're uh, part of his listening tastes. Oh, wouldn't it be? I mean, you know, and look, it's good that you mentioned this thing about the immortal because it's funny that he he never really gets mentioned. But look, I remember at the time he was he was like a class above almost every other player, and in fact, he's one of the few players to have actually kind of scored. I think it was like perfect ten in rugby league weeks ratings. Uh, they used to do ratings each week for players, and I think uh, if you look him up. He was one of the few players to score multiple times, 10 out of 10, as in played a perfect game and was just unbeatable. Uh, and obviously, you know, he dominated state of origin and, and test football. I mean, he was part of the those great kangaroo tours as well in the 80s. So uh, we've been blessed with some pretty great players. And we're, we're still blessed. The fact that he's still an analyst going around today in, on Channel 9, uh, imparting his wisdom. You know, and the thing is, he's very rarely wrong. I mean, this is the thing. Mm. A lot of people dislike Phil Gould, even though Phil Gould's quite a good analyst and a, a brain, a, you know, a rugby league brain and that kind of thing. Um, and and you're right. He's a, still has a good good bloke, but also <clears throat> really astute in terms of his judgment of players and his judgment of, uh, you know, uh, the, the trends in the game as well. So, uh, yeah, if he's listening, that would be an absolutely amazing. So, uh Let's see how we go. <laughs> Maybe next week, we'll, next time we'll have something else to report in terms of our Twitter followers. Uh, 
I do want to shout out to one Twitter follower, John Kenny. He's actually our second Twitter follower. So we, as I said, we are starting from a low, a low base of zero, but uh, but but very much appreciative of his uh, uh, reaching out to us and following us on Twitter. Uh, you know, I wonder if he's related to the great Brett Kenny because he's also a Parramatta fan. So wow, John, if you're out there, let us know if you are a Brett Kenny uh, relative mm. in any way. But if not, you can uh, you can even just pretend because uh, yeah, because that would be pretty awesome. Because again, Brett Kenny, another unsung hero. Of mm. uh, you know of of the eighties there in the eels the great eels side, so um, yeah. look and, and let's not forget the pioneer of rugby league podcasting, Bobby Kenny. He could actually be a relative of a Bobby Kenny. <laughs> <laughs> oh, that's that's going way back there in uh, in the memory banks of uh, Bobby Kenny. Who can forget Bobby Kenny? Uh, <laughs> all right, well. You know, some might say he was the greatest podcaster of them all. <laughs> yeah, anyway, let's, anyway. Moving on. I think. Let's move on. All right. So um, we – look, we, we started this a couple of weeks ago, uh, uh, given that we've moved to fortnightly and we're still in the middle of COVID. Wherever you are in the world, hopefully you're safe and your family is safe and your um, – uh, hopefully your government is doing what it can to safely, uh, you know, transition you through this difficult time. Uh, but what I thought I'd do is, uh, you know, at least for the foreseeable future, while we have uh, this thing happening around the world, the pandemic, that uh, those of us who are in isolation in some way, uh, maybe would like to sort of join along and have a bit of a rugby league quiz, uh, you know, to at the start of this, uh, we ask uh, we ask some questions, and then I'll give you the answers at the end of the podcast. Uh, if you can manage to to stay listening for that long, so uh, here we go. And Tish, what I'll do is you you can be the guinea pig as usual. Uh, yeah, we'll, I'll get you to answer at the end. And yes, uh, okay. but but here are the questions. So first of all, question number one. So again, six tackle, six questions. First question is, those of you playing at home, how many first-grade premierships have been won by the Manly Warringah Sea Eagles? And that, and by that, I mean all-time, not just NRL era. So how many first-grade premierships have been won by the Manly Warringah Sea Eagles? Question two, which UK Super League team has totally wicked stadium as its home ground? Question three, which Melbourne Storm player, so those of you listening last week might know this, which Melbourne Storm player was famously knocked out unconscious in the 1999 NRL Grand Final, directly leading to the first ever penalty try in a first grade Grand Final in Australia? Uh, Question four, who said that? So name the person who said the following quote. Uh, Quote, I'm 49, I've had a brain hemorrhage and a triple bypass, and I could still go out and play a reasonable game of rugby union, but I wouldn't last 30 seconds in rugby league. And a little clue for those of you playing at home, he is the only non-Australian to ever have coached a state of origin side. All right, question number five. Who captained Canterbury Brinks down in the 1988 New South Wales Rugby League Grand Final against Balmain? Was it A, Peter Tunks? B, Steve Folks, or C, Steve Mortimer. And finally, question number six, who is the current captain of the Samoan National Rugby League team? So the there are, yeah, the Samoan National Rugby League team, the Toa Samoa, they call them. All right, so without any further ado, let's launch into our six tackles because we've got a lot to talk about. Here we go with our six tackles. Tackle number one. 
All right. So the main thing that's been happening, the big piece of news that has uh, set the world on fire here in Australia in the NRL is uh, it has actually got to do with uh, what we're going to call anti-vax gate. So, <laughs> yeah, so really, right. really, this is about uh, a bunch of players who have said uh, we we are objecting to the requirement that we must have a flu shot. Uh, this is just a regular flu shot, mind you, uh, in order as a requirement to to get back into uh, the season proper on May twenty eighth, and uh, and look, it's it sparked a bit of a debate about it's the old no jab no play uh, mm. thing. Uh, you know, uh, those parents with kids going to daycares in Australia will know that uh, you know one of the requirements for getting into daycares and schools and things like that is that you are fully immunized. So, uh, you know, the vaccination kind of furor has come up, but this time just in relation to a flu shot. So it's been quite a few players that have uh, have said no to this. So, Tish, do you have the details? Yeah, look, so um, yes, I do. So, look, obviously the NRL is asking, um, you know, the Federal Government of Australia and New Zealand, uh, you know, for an exemption to be allowed to start the competition on May 28th. And part of that is that they had a whole set of conditions that they need to uh, need to actually uh, adhere to. Um, now, not only that, the NRL also has uh, you know New South Wales, Queensland, Victoria, and uh, Government of New Zealand once again. Uh, obviously, there are teams and you know citizens or you know residences of those three you know those three or four jurisdictions, uh, and they each all have their requirements. So, um, the NRL players, and then so look, the, the first one that came out was actually Queen, the Queensland government. The Queensland government actually said that, um, you know, they will not, uh, they will not allow players who have not had a flu injection to play, um, without any, um, without any sort of, uh, you know, uh, without any players objecting. So all players need to, there's not going to be any exceptions, um, from the Queensland government point of view. New South Wales, Victoria, and I think even New Zealand, they said that, look, we would like to have it, but uh, we will be willing to exempt players just as long as they um, sign a waiver form. So the issue really started with a couple of players from the Gold Coast Titans who have refused, well, who um, for for reasons of their own sort of personal choice have decided do, do not want to have the flu injection. So as a result... Um, you know, the Queensland... So the NRL did actually request an exemption for those two players in the Queensland government. Queensland government actually said no. The NRL, uh, at this point in time, is actually sticking by the players who have actually refused and are trying to get these players to be allowed to play. But what it looks like is that basically, you know, with the whole situation that is going on at the moment, um, you know, it is a huge risk to have players without uh, immunisation playing um, or just the perception of, of um, you know, having players without flu shots being playing and having this exemption when there are actually other people in other industries that it's compulsory to actually have these flu injections, um, you know, who have been exempted. So that's where the bulk of the issue lies. So we have, I think it is around about 20 players all, all up out of, 
you know, out of the, the yeah, so the vast majority of players have, have actually got the flu shots. It's just that there's about 20 or so players. Now, that number is coming down because as the pressure gets applied to these players, um, they uh, they are starting to get their flu shots done. So, um, yeah, but there, but there is still a, a number of players that have refused to take their flu shots. So, look, what's happening at the moment is that these players are being stood down and I believe they're being stood down without pay as well which is also another little side note to it. Uh, in my personal opinion, I actually had my flu shot done today. Um, so I, I do see the merit of having a flu shot. I do understand that people have their individual freedoms, but I think if you are asking for a special exemption, um, if you are allowing, you know, if, you're, if you've got a job <laughs> at the moment and a lot of people have lost their jobs, um, then, you know, uh, then I think, uh, I think NRL players need to comply. Um, you know, regardless of their beliefs. Um, and if not, they've got to be prepared to, I suppose, uh, you know, uh, accept the consequences. And in this case, the consequences is, is that you're going to lose your spot in your, in you know, in your team that you have to play, uh, that you're playing in. Um, my advice to any uh, young, uh, you know, uh, player that's aspiring to play in the NRL, get your flu shot done. And uh, ring up some of these NRL clubs and tell them, hey, I'm ready to go because um, they're going to need people to step in if these 20 players also do not actually, uh, you know, do not actually want to take their flu shots. Because I have a feeling the government won't budge with the no jab, no play uh, rule. So, how about yourself, there, Doctor T? Are we? Uh, is this, is this a human rights violation? Is this a freedom uh, freedoms violation by enforcing this, or do you think it, it's fair play? Uh, that's good questions. Um, I <laughs> it's a difficult one because, as you said, the NRL has kind of painted itself into a corner here because mm. by by sort of being the first out of the blocks in as as a professional sport to say we are coming back at this time and we're working with government to make it happen, and then the backlash, if you remember, that, that occurred. See, this is all related. The, the backlash that occurred obviously then led to them saying, uh, you know what, we will provide some guarantees that we will, uh, we will do even more than you expect us to do uh, in order to get back to normal. So one of the things that we will do, for instance, is uh, ensure that our players – you know, are as safe as possible, given that they can't, obviously, the nature of the game, you can't maintain so, social distancing kind of measures. Uh, you've got to do other things. So they kind of then said, okay, we'll do this. Uh, now, we also saw last last time we spoke about this that um, the Players um, Union, the, the Players Association, uh, wasn't really consulted properly with uh, a lot of the, the, the kind of things that were happening. This is even post-Greenberg being sacked, uh, so, um, you know, this, so that kind of wasn't a good sign either that, uh, that they were making these negotiations, they were making these plans without really having chatted to the players to see what um, concerns they may have had. I think if they did chat to them, maybe this would have come up um, that, you know, if you're imposing conditions, preconditions that uh, the government will uh, – agree with that will give you an exemption or allow you to play then uh it may actually adversely impact on some players so 
having said that, so, you know, that was a couple of weeks ago that this was all kind of been spoken about. Uh, look, and now fast forward a couple of weeks, and now we're in the position where schools are being transitioned back to normal. Uh, we've got three stages of, you know, transitioning back to normal. And we're in stage one at the moment. So there's, you know, cafes are being opened up, but limited ways, et cetera, et cetera. This is in Australia we're talking about. Um, and obviously the states are going to uh, make their own decisions based on whatever the federal government has recommended. Um, so we could be actually looking at at the case or the situation where when the NRL comes back, that most things may have come back to normal. If, if there's not another spike in cases, most things may have come back to normal, which begs the question, if the NRL had actually waited and not self-imposed these conditions, then we wouldn't be talking about players saying, I refuse to take a flu shot, because there was never a requirement before this year to take a flu shot to be able to play the game. So this is a new thing. Yeah. And and so it kind of begs the question that, yeah, if if they had just waited and not imposed this condition, then potentially we'll get to the point at that at that point where you won't have players that have been stood down. Having said that, I think what will likely happen is that while they've been stood down now, I don't think it will be for very long. Because I think what will happen is uh, once the rest of the country gets back to normal and conditions are, uh, you know, eased a little bit in terms of uh, different types of industries going back to normal, um, the NRL won't be in a position of, uh, of having to have these conditions of players must have flu shots. Um, in fact, especially not if other professional sports don't do that. And quite frankly, if any club sacks a player or stands them down, especially without pay, when that is the situation, uh, you're going to see a lot more lawyers now <laughs> circling, <laughs> yeah. circling those players because mm. those players will have every right to to put mount a bit of a legal case against the NRL for restricting their, their freedom in a way, um, especially if no other professional sport does it. So... Um, yeah, it, we may be jumping the gun a bit, but I think uh, the timing of this is kind of interesting. Uh, and so, yeah, to the point of, you know, do they have a right to refuse to take a flu shot? Well, I guess I guess it all comes down to what contract did they sign? Um, when you sign up to be a rugby league professional, do you sign up to um, have vaccinations and things like that? I don't know exactly what the deal is. Obviously, they didn't. Otherwise, yeah. it wouldn't be, you know, people like Bryce Cartwright, I think, and and some others, um, you know, have uh, who is a Josh Papali as well. Potentially, is one of the people that have been named as having refused to take the, yeah. the shot. So, and I think uh, there's three players from Manly as well. Um, yeah, yeah. So look, they're more. I think they're within their right to uh, up to the point where look. It's a corporation. It's not government. No one is forcing you to do anything. But if you're wanting to use the services of an organization or if you want to actually be part of an, of an organization that earns you a ton of money, um, you know, that's this is a difficulty where big organizations uh, pay you a lot of money. Um, it's not really – no, the government's not restricting you. You can choose not to have a vaccination if you don't want but if you want to earn hundreds of thousands of dollars playing in the NRL top grade, 
maybe that will become a condition in the future. I don't think that uh, it's necessary. Uh, I think potentially you might argue that having if if we ever get a COVID vaccine, that yep. might be a legitimate reason because we know that it's a killer disease. So uh, whereas flu isn't necessarily, uh, and and it's not like the flu. I mean, the way things have panned out, it's sort of a bit hard to define. So um, yeah, I mean, definitely, it's a definitely a tough one, and it's probably won't be the last time we speak about this. But the way that the clubs react to the government, the way that the government, uh, like Queensland government, apparently has come down hard on Gold Coast Titans players as well. Suggesting that they, uh, they, you know, they won't be able to play at all. Um, so, you know, it's the interesting interplay between government and the NRL. But um, yeah, some good questions there. But Tish, I'll give you the final word uh, before we move on. Yeah. Look. Um, yeah. Look. I think what you said is right. I think this is we're in a very interesting spot when it comes to the whole COVID situation, or at least in Australia anyway, because it is still a fluid situation. Um, as you quite rightly said, things are constantly changing um you know people going back to normal and by the time may 28th rolls around uh we could be in that situation yeah everything is back to normal but i think as it stands um we are still in the not as you know not business as usual sort of terms and if we're in those terms then i do i do still stand by the fact that i think that uh these players if they do want to play they need to have their flu shots taken because essentially the NRL is trying to comply uh, to a set of rules as you quite um, to try to get an exemption to allow them to play. Because at the moment, um, you know, all the social distancing rules that are out there, um, the NRL does not, um, the nature of rugby league doesn't allow, I mean, we've got 26 players gathering uh, together um, to begin with. So, so there is, so there is, there is quite a lot the NRL has to do. I think what you kind of said uh, hit the nail on the head um, that the you know players association was not part of the negotiations when all these um, you know when all these uh, rules were put in place by the broadcasters by the um, you know not necessarily broadcasters but you know broadcasters were involved but also was um, you know all all the government uh, entities that were also involved as well um, there probably should have been a better sort of communication uh, route. Um, you know, probably the NRL thought at a high level that all the players are on board with um, <laughs> with getting the game back uh, on the field. And I think all players are, even the ones that are refusing. Um, but I think because there was no, uh, you know, transparency on the details of what, he, you know, what we need to do to comply, um, that's kind of resulted in this situation. But, um, you know, as it stands at the moment, though, these players, they have been sort of temporarily stood down. Um, and, you know, and yeah, but we'll see when May 28th rolls around, how many of these players will actually, uh, be allowed to take the field. So, uh, watch at this space, I say, as the, um, as the anti-vax gate continues. Absolutely. Uh, all right, let's move on to tackle number two. All right. So one of the other things that's come out of, uh, of the, you know, the transition back to, uh you know back to normality is uh is uh, i guess well it's not really normal normal time anyway because we've had a ceo that uh has left his position recently and a bit of a vacancy there and a bit of a power shift within nrl headquarters so now we've got pvl as they call him peter volandis 
uh, Volan- Volandemort, as sometimes as some people call him, um, you know, taking a bit of a more of a front seat in terms of decisions that are being made. So one of the things that they've tried to do as well, uh, given what's happened, is that COVID has exposed the you know financial woes of the NRL. And one of the things that they're trying to do is to cut costs. And one of the ways that they're cutting costs is cutting the number of on-field referees from two to one. And so there's been a bit of a debate about, um, A, is that a good thing? And, uh, you know, and, and B, you know, is this the right time to be making such drastic decisions? Uh, and I guess C, the other question is, you know, is this really going to cut much costs? I mean, we're just talking about one extra person for each uh, for each game. It's not really that big a deal. But um, look, what are your thoughts, Tish, on uh, the potential that we're going to be shifting? And, well, I don't know if it is potential, if it's actually happening, that uh, we're shifting back to one on-field referee. Um, uh, and, yeah, so what, what, what are your thoughts on that? Yep. Okay, well... Um the actual principle of only having one referee, I think, actually makes sense <laughs> because I don't think there is any advantage with having two referees. In fact, I think there is a lack of consistency when it comes to, um, you know, one referee marking out 10 metres one way and the other referee marking out a different way. Uh, you know, one referee policing the ruck one way while the other one does it the other way. Um, so I think um, that has caused issues. Obviously, communication between... Um, the referees um, themselves, um, you know, adds complexity to the decision-making process. So does um, it also adds complexity to the communication between players because players now have two different, uh, <laughs> two different, uh, you know, opinions per ruck on what is right and what is wrong potentially. So I think moving back to one referee is good. Um, I think also because the fact that um, other than the NRL, every other uh, Every other grade of rugby league only has the one referee at the moment, including, well, not including State of Origin, right? State of Origin has gone to two, but including International Rugby League. International Rugby League still has, only has the one player, one referee. So I think that actually makes sense to go back to one. Um, it is a good way to cut costs. Uh, specifically, um, at the moment, there is 25 full-time referees and touch judges. That's right, full-time referees and full-time touch judges um, and obviously by reducing the amount of referees to one per game that's actually going to half the full-time roster of the refereeing so in terms of cutting costs I think it is a good way now obviously we don't want people, you know it's tragic times a lot of people have lost their jobs and you know you know lose yeah you know, this that makes an impact on referees because obviously you know half of them will lose their jobs by doing it um, but I think I don't think there is any. I think this is one area that we actually can cut costs because I do see it as a. Uh, I do see it as a double up, and um, yeah, I, I just think that it hasn't really been working. Um, now there is another little aspect to this is because they've actually attached another little change in the rules, which I think is actually a bit more controversial than the one uh, referee on the field. The other rule that they're um, you know, proposing on changing is that, um, you know, for infringements where, uh, you know, one team is slowing down the ruck, so ruck-based infringements, rather than blowing a penalty, 
um, they're actually talking about give, um, just doing an automatic, um, you know, restart of the tackle count. So an automatic set of six if there's a ruck infringement as opposed to blowing a penalty, letting the game stop, uh, letting the attacking team, you know, or letting the defensive team who have actually been the people at fault to actually take a break. Now you don't get a break. It's just six again and then the other team has to try and obviously, you know, with that set of six, you know, I have got another six tackles to try and score. Um, they're actually also int- – well, they're, I, along with the one referee, this is also being proposed. And I think that's a bit more controversial because I think that also – that actually will change the way the game is played. And as a result, it will change the way the game is being coached. And uh, therefore, it probably makes the game a lot more different to what it is at the moment. And some of the strategies and tactics that, that some teams have might have to change just based on that one rule change. So, look, I'm in favour of the one referee um, concept. Not so big on the set of six. I do see the merit of it, but uh, the automatic set of six for me is, uh, yeah, just I think a step a step too far. What about yourself, Dr. T? Yeah, look, uh, oh, look, there's a lot to unpack there, but I think the... The one referee thing, I think, you know, a lot of the argument has been we've we've come so far to make these decisions based on, you know, uh, prior evidence and, and, you know, prior frustrations. And so, you know, we, we moved to two referees for a reason because the one referee wasn't able to handle everything. Uh, but I remember at the time when we did move to two referees that uh, there was this big debate, and there still is, and we still talk about it almost every week, that... Um, you know, the the model of the two referees and the way it's panned out has not really been very good. You know, you've got the kind of, um, you know, half the time you don't know, like, who's the lead referee. You know, they used to do, like, what, one half is one referee, the other half is the other referee, the lead. Um, you know, that means it's difficult if you're a captain to establish a relationship with the, the referee to kind of get a sense of what is their style. Are they particularly happy to blow the whistle today? Are they particularly happy to let things roll? You know, that's part of the nature of, of the fun of the game as well is the ability to kind of know that, you know, in the past you'd be able to, if you got Greg McCallum or if you got, um, you know, Bill, Har- uh, Bill Harrigan, you know, you'd know, what kind of style they'd have for the entire game. And also, to be honest, it's kind of empowering to be the one referee in charge of of the game. Um, yeah. and, and the move to two referees potentially, I think, has then led to the next step, which is a greater reliance on the video referee, which has then led to a greater reliance on what was then instituted as the bunker, um, the off-site video, so all of which have had problems. So from a purist perspective, despite the fact I disagree with how this has come about and the fact that it may be a bit of a power grab by PVL and and it's not the best time to do this, to make these kind of decisions without consulting with clubs, etc., it's kind of good in a way that from a purist perspective, we're going back to the one referee uh, who, who can actually then take control of the game. But what needs to happen, though, is we need to be smart about all the, uh, the, the assistant referees, shall I say. You know, everyone else that's there to officiate, what is their role? How clear is it? You know, um, let's give them some agency and some, 
autonomy and, and some assistance so that they can then help the main referee to make the decisions that need to be made. So I'm okay with doing that. I'm okay with, uh, you know, I just hope that that doesn't mean we're going to have referees who have lost their confidence and rely much, much more on the video referees because, as we know, that's not necessarily a good thing either. Uh, so that's my view on that. Um, but on the uh, the other thing, which is uh, – so remind me again. So we've got the teams get a set of six if – the opposition slowed down the play, the ball, and other kind of professional fouls. Um, so this could potentially be fundamentally changing the game, though, because basically what you're saying is that for some types of infringements, uh, you as a team doesn't get, don't get the choice to decide what to do. You just get an automatic another set of six. Um that's I have right. a bit of I have a bit of a problem with that because because uh, you know why does one type of infringement uh, you know give you a freedom to choose and another doesn't? Um, that's that's kind of the thing I'm a bit concerned about is that it it part of the thing is you get a penalty you can decide what to do and that's that's always been in the game and and the reason why it's good that it's kept in the game I think is that. Uh, it punishes the other side. You know, okay. giving someone a set of six again doesn't allow you to then uh, calm yourselves down and take a breather. You know, that's part of the part of the good thing about the game is that uh, you know it's the ebbs and flows of momentum and energy as well. Uh, you know, sometimes it's a rip roaring first twenty minutes of State of Origin, and when that first penalty comes. Everyone takes a bit of a breather, and actually, it's pretty good. You know, no one, I don't think anyone at that time will be going, come on, stop wasting time. You know, these players are out there running, running hard, and, um, you know, so if, if that's the case, that there, there are blanket changes like that, I'm kind of against it. I think we need to just, um, but again, that goes back to what I was saying that this is not the time to push through significant changes. Um, uh, to the game, and that's that's one thing that I'm concerned about is that uh, I think what should happen is we should just go back to the game as normal for the rest of the year, and then have a think about these things. That would be the logical thing. So I don't know. Uh, what are your thoughts? Uh, I'll give you the final word, and then we move on. Uh, okay. Um, yeah. Look, I, I do look the set of six. I, I do believe that in some instances um, it would be good just to play on. Um, you know, like uh, I could see it sometimes where there's a tactic involved where you're slowing down the rock, you're stopping the the other team from trying to get a quick play of the ball, and the referee blows a penalty, and then you know what you do, uh, you know, it's actually uh, the, the, it's almost like a reward for the defensive team for causing the penalty because now they've got a bit of a break, you know, inevitably somebody in their lineup is uh, injured. So, you know, and the referee saying, look, I can't start play until we get this, you know, guy stitched up and stuff like this. And then so, you know, what was, uh, you know, so one team had the momentum. The momentum gets killed because of, um, you know, because of the indiscretion the defensive team have done. And, you know, so I do get that that concept, but I think you're right, Dr. T, in that it is going to change the way uh, the game has done. I think it's a good thing to review at the end of the season and bring it in into a fresh season. Um, I think 
at times maybe Project Apollo, the NRL, you know, uh, you know, PVL, who, whoever is sort of behind these decisions might be thinking that, hey, this is a brand new season. Um, and it's not. We're continuing an existing season at the moment. So I think and that's why the points count. So I think that's why we can't make too many changes right here on the fly at the moment. Uh, unlike the COVID-19 situation, the rules of rugby league shouldn't be as fluid as what they are right now. So um, because, you know, it's not del- – yeah. So I think that we do need to maybe um, – yeah, maybe just park that for the moment, talk about it at the end of the year. And, um, yeah, look, the second referee as well, look, you know, I think we're kind of, you know, um, if that if that gets parked as well. You know, I, I thought about this as well. You know, we want to get the touch judges more involved. But I think sometimes an over an over-enthusiastic touch judge, um, you know, who sees a forward pass from the other side of the field and runs onto the field to stop the game is sometimes more annoying than a... Um, <laughs> Than an underutilized second referee, uh, so I don't know if giving some of these touch judges more power is uh, going to have some unintended consequences. Because uh, yeah, some of those incidences are a bit annoying. And uh, who could forget the uh, the the Jared Hayne incident from a couple of State of Origins ago? You know where uh, there his foot was nowhere near the line, but yet they called it you know out of bounds. So yeah. Well, yeah, look, Tish, mistakes can still be made. And obviously, even yep. with video referee and bunker, we're still making mistakes. So yep. I think I think the thing is that if we if we kind of, uh, yeah, I mean, look, the way I look at it, you know, if you think about when the game was the most entertaining and, and the most kind of, uh, uh, you know, uh, ticked off most of the qualities that are, that you you kind of want ideally in the game of rugby league, uh, you know, well, people might have different opinions, but for me it was kind of like like the early nineties, basically. Mm. Um, you know, it, it's uh, we were just coming out of the eighties where there was a lot of there was a very much a def, uh, defensive, uh, you know, the great teams of the eighties turned it into a defensive slog fest, but then you had a bit of an explosion. You had the Green Machine. You had the exciting Panthers. You had the Broncos, the the and there was a lot lot of stuff happening in the early nineties that you know then obviously created the conditions for the war, and um and there was a reason for that. It's because it was so bloody entertaining and and it was great to watch and we had such great characters and personalities and yeah there were mistakes but does anyone remember any major refereeing blunders you know or i don't i certainly don't i remember usually you know usually the teams that end up winning the premiership are the best teams you know and we don't we don't really hear about um you know oh well something some dodgy decisions or whatever but we hear about that a lot lately and i think there's something in that that i think we've over police the game a little bit and and sometimes it's best to just go back to what we know best and uh and where when when the game was at its best and the golden a golden era uh and and think about what that means to people so anyway um, yeah let's move oh, on sorry, because, oh, sorry. Uh, you just reminded something so i know this is a side note but going back to the bill harrigan interview with still like according to bill harrigan his biggest blunder that he ever made was actually the Benny Elias 1989 grand final field goal 
because afterwards and Gary Belcher caught the ball, he was actually offside and he didn't call it. So there you go. Well, well, that's the thing. I mean, that would have been an easy mistake to make because of the excitement of the game. But again, <laughs> it's an almost fairy tale, isn't it? Like it is. It is. <laughs> it's an almost fairy tale. But look, uh, look. Let's move let's on. Move on. Let's move on to uh, a potentially new golden era in the game. Uh, tackle number three. All right, PVL, Peter Volandis could soon be lost to rugby league is the headline. After securing yeah. the game, a $2.3 billion seven-year TV deal. Tish, uh, it's a big announcement. It hasn't really got the, the, the kind of uh, the fanfare that you would normally hear. Uh, from mm. these these kinds of announcements, um, you know, give us a summary of what this is about, and then okay. we'll dive into it and, and unpack it a little bit. Okay, look, this is—I don't know how much of this is facted, how much of this is rumor, but the rumor is that Channel Nine and Foxtel are about to give the NRL a uh, 2.3 billion dollar deal, which is a seven-year TV deal. Uh, which Peter Van Landis is, uh, you know, signing away. Um, basically, it's a, an extension of their existing three-year deal, but adding another four-year deal with the same amount of money paid, um, you know, by the broadcasters to Rugby League to secure, you know, the funding. Obviously, this is like an, a major achievement based on the situation that we're in at the moment and, uh, you know, not having that much guarantees. It will actually be the biggest TV deal in sporting history in Australia. Um, and apparently, uh, Volanders actually said that, um, you know, if I could get the game into a good financial position to start again, that's going to be my reward. And he owes Rugby League a lot because it saved him from being bashed up when he was young. So he doesn't, he, he feels that that would be a good time to walk away from the game. Um, so I don't want the ARLC chair because and being CEO is not in the cards. I've got no agenda. I just want, yeah. So in other words, he's, he's basically saying that, look, you know, he does the role that he's currently playing, he doesn't want to be playing this role full-time. He feels that get, securing the funding um, is enough for him. Um, one thing I've got to say about Peter Valand is, is what I've noticed is that um, journalists who are on opposing sides of every debate all seem to be on the Volandis uh, bandwagon at the moment. I've seen this also with Foxtel as well as Channel 9 coverage. Usually these two set of broadcasters are at loggerheads. But at the moment, everybody seems to be, uh, you know, really respecting Peter Volandis. So Volandomania is happening in the NRL. But, uh, you know, is it a good thing for him to be walking away after making a deal like this, or do we need Peter Volandis to be in the game long term, Doctor C? Uh, look, it's a good question. I look. There's a couple of things that you said that are uh, in this whole story that are a bit sus to me, and, <laughs> yep. and sus is putting it really politely because uh, look, the first thing is it's always it's always a bit of a concern when both sides of the media. Um, uh, in both sides, I mean, you know, media or companies who usually totally disagree with each other and have totally different agendas uh, are all kind of saying he's really great for the game and blah, blah, blah. So first of all, that's that's a bad sign when everyone is on his side. Um, that it's, or when all of the media is kind of, there's consensus, put it that way. 
That's usually yep. a bad sign because you never get that even in politics at the best of times when you've got a good politician running a country or wherever. Um, you know, you hardly ever get that anyway. So that's a bit of a concern. And the second thing is uh, it's a bit of a, a bit of a red flag when someone says, look, my main aim is to just get them into a good – to get the NRL into a good financial position and then I'm just going to walk away. So that – that is also sus because I, you'd kind of think he's just barely started. There's been a, an unprecedented, there's that word again, unprecedented situation in the world that's affected the game itself. It's exposed some financial difficulties. So that's that's uh, kind of been a good thing in a way that, that this has come out in the sunlight. Um, but if he's honestly telling us that his measure of success will be if he's able to get some injection of money back into the game and that he leaves the game with uh, in a better financial position. Um, that's kind of like, I just find that that's a bit premature to say, I'm just going to leave after, you know, several months in the role and not having done anything except, except what uh, extended a television deal that we already had. Okay. Mm. And has it changed the broadcasting in any way? No. Has it future-proofed the broadcasting situation so that we're more, uh, we're building up our own digital product? No. Okay. So what exactly are you doing? So this, this to me seems a bit sus. Uh, And I think what the only way to really kind of explore it is if we unpack the details. So, and I believe that's our next tackle. So, should we should we just jump yeah, into our next tackle? Yes, let's do it. Let's do it. Here we go. All right. So tackle number four is where we're going to unpack this. Uh, you know, hopefully to answer the question from before about whether um, whether the the suggestion of Peter Valandis is going to leave as soon as this deal has been inked uh, is is the right thing to do. So um, look, what is this all about? So we've got. Uh, let's have a look at this. We've got a $2.3 billion broadcast deal. It's for seven years. Uh, and it's meant to be, well, the, the media is already announcing it as the richest TV deal, broadcast deal in Australia's sporting history. Um, I'm not sure that that's actually accurate, given that if you look at it per, on a per year basis, it's actually lower than the current one we're on. <laughs> so that's... <laughs> so that's that's that. It just looks big because you you're talking about a total seven, seven year years. Deal. Yeah, yep. which obviously you you could do that. You know, anyway. Um. So so okay. So that's okay. So let's are we gonna let's dive into it a little bit. Yeah, yeah. So we've got. Uh, do you want to take the lead on this, Tish? Yeah, I'll I'll, I'll take the lead. So look, I'm actually going through Phil Rothfield's. Um, he actually gave a bit of a seven-year plan. Uh, but then the good thing, plenty of disagree with it, it actually does show you so many different aspects of the game that we actually would need to look at from the financial point of view, right? So if we go to revenue, the revenue of the NRL would be $330 million per year cha- paid by Channel 9 and $200 million paid out by, well, sorry, by Channel 9 and Fox Sports would be $330 million. Plus the game is at the moment... Uh, receiving about another $200 million from non-broadcasting revenue. And I think we could go back, uh, you know, a, a few weeks ago. So that's $530 million, roughly is what the 
revenue is, okay? So spending, how does the NRL spend its money? Well, um, uh, the clubs get $206 million of that $530 million. So that's a big chunk, and that's 16 times $13 million grants, right? So the NRL has also um, the NRL has also been propping up clubs who have had licensed um, poker machines. Uh, well, who own licensed clubs who have poker machines because poker machine revenue is down. So in the past few years, the NRL has actually been playing uh, has actually been paying a few clubs a little bit extra who have had revenues down due to poker machine uh, losses, basically, which is not a very good situation, right? So so. According to uh, Phil Phil Rothfield, um, those payments is, is estimated to be about four hundred million dollars the NRL has spent over the last ten years, and obviously his suggestion is that we we shouldn't be paying that type of money uh, to the clubs. Like the clubs shouldn't have that ability. Uh, the NRL shouldn't give extra money other than that. $13 million grant per year to the sixteen clubs. Um, the next point about that is obviously you know coach sackings and you know overstaffing of um you know not you know non-players like so other football members um you know that needs to go uh then we've also got to talk about uh cost cutting salaries at the nrl um so obviously the ceo position at the moment is is that i think it's about 1.2 million so there is a suggestion of reducing that down uh to below a million dollars um the nrl also um you know, gave our number of they spend around about five hundred thousand dollars a day uh, is the estimated cost of running um, the competition, and they have a staff of around about four hundred uh, people. So there's obviously uh, some estimations about cutting back on those costs. So Verlanders has actually said that he wants to slash um, the cost by about fifty million dollars a year. Don't know exactly how he will do that, but obviously it will mean. Staff costs is, is obviously the main thing that we need to do. Um, the next part is obviously with football departments in individual clubs. So um, at the moment, uh, you know, there are some, you know, uh, coaches that are earning over $1.5 million per year. So that will actually have to come down as well. Um, they're also talking about how, um, you know, each, uh, you know, they're going to limit the amount of assistant coaches that are in every club. So at the moment, there is about three assistant coaches. We're going to knock that down to two um, and then, you know, have, you know, less physios, um, you know, less sort of sports science people and so forth. So really cutting back on the cost of each football department in each club. Then obviously the next step is the pay appointments. Um, you know, there is like um, reducing the salary cap from $9.6 million to $8.5 million. Um, So there's a lot to do with there. Uh, then you also have to talk about grassroots, right? Because at the moment, grassroots is being um, sort of partly funded by both the clubs and the New South Wales and Queensland Rugby League. So there is talk about cutting costs there. We're basically giving um, that whole grassroots responsibility back into Queensland uh, Rugby League as well as New South Wales Rugby League instead of having, you know, um, you know, sort of employees at clubs who are also t- – talent scouting, young recruitment. Um, so this will actually save like a team like the Penrith Panthers several million dollars a year because they spend so much money on junior development. So that's also another thing that we have to look at. Then obviously we talked about the referee. We also talked about the bunker. So the bunker, if you think about it, the bunker is a multi-million dollar uh, investment that they've spent 
and it doesn't do anything for like six months of the year. <laughs> um, so there's a couple of things that the NRL can do at the bunker. Obviously, the first thing is is that they could actually um, offset some of the costs by sharing it with other sports. That's one uh, thing that, that's been talked about um, as well. Wow. So maybe um, you know combining. You know, so basically, it's a bunker for multiple sports. You could even turn it into a revenue generating part of the business. You, you actually license that out, so you allow different other sports to to use your facilities. So that could be something that also could be done. So there's a lot of work that needs to happen. So I know we're talking about cutting costs, but if you actually go down into the, uh, we just went at it at a very high level, but to go into it for, for you know, really in detail, there is so much we need to do. Um, integrity unit, I forgot to mention that. Well, there's a there few seven, more. Yeah, yeah, go ahead. Keep going. Yeah, integrity unit. So with the integrity unit, there are 17 investigators um, full-time wow. and we're talking about legal advisors and betting analysis. So, you know, we might think about those salary breaches that, uh, so salary cap breaches that Melbourne have done, that other clubs have uh, have done, uh, and sorry to pick on Melbourne, but that will kind of the most thing the Bulldogs have done, and so forth. But that's actually costing the game annually per year. If you think about the extra staff the NRL employs just to make sure that clubs aren't cheating, um, so yeah. it's kind of ridiculous. I mean, yeah, well. Yeah, can I just dovetail a little bit before? Because I know there's a few yeah. more bits and pieces. Yeah. Uh, in fact, no, no. Actually, let, let me just mental flag this, and then uh, I'll come back to it. But uh, I'll let you finish off the rest of that uh, those points, and then I just want to come back to something which is an easy fix. I think. So go ahead. Okay. Yeah. Okay. The commission. Um. Now it's time. Okay. So obviously, uh, you know the uh, you know now it's time to shake up the commission, right? The 16 clubs should have two representatives on the commission. Um, there'd be no more secrets over finances. I think that's pretty obvious that there has been a lot of secrets at the moment. Um, and also, you know, the QRL and the uh, New South Wales Regulatory should all all have, you know, representation in the commission to actually have better governance over the, the sport. Um, stadium policies as well. Uh, obviously, the NRL pays a lot to hire out the venues every uh, season. So we also need to look at there are some venues that actually pay the NRL to actually play there, such as Allianz and the ANZ Stadium. So actually um, strategically putting more games into places where you actually make money versus places where you lose money. And look, the final point, and this is kind of a big one, but also having uh, actually putting an investment fund together so the NRL um, can start to own some assets, you know, basically build up I don't know if it's a share portfolio, if it's uh, you know some real estate properties or something like that. So the NRL actually has assets that uh, can go uh, into the game for future use. So I know there's a lot to unpack there, but that's basically an overall view of every single aspect that the NRL needs to now look at, and probably there's a lot more than that to try and obviously make that situation that yes, there's 560 million dollars that we're receiving. But we're only spending about four hundred to four hundred and fifty, so we could save a hundred million dollars per year, and that's without without obviously yeah, and making sure everything is covered. So, Doctor T, what are your notes and thoughts about all of that? Oh look, uh, if you can hear me, I'm about to crack my knuckles and get stuck into this because uh, <laughs> okay, yep, because there's a lot to unpack here, but and we haven't got all day. But I think look, there's a couple of things that that, and, and no doubt we'll be continuing to talk about this. But let's just start sinking our teeth into this. So, look to me, 
each of those things that that have been pointed out in uh, who's uh, whose article was it? Phil Rothfield. Was uh, Phil, it? Phil 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 Rothfield. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, is is really look? It's really good that he's outlined all that because uh, it's given us a lot to talk about. And and look, when you really lay it out like that, it kind of gives you uh, it gives you a bit of clarity as to what what is really happening. And one of the other things that that really helps you with clarity is if each of these things. Uh, look, I would say for those of you out there who uh, uh, yeah, either enjoy uh, cleaning up your house or have a wife or someone else who enjoys cleaning up your house, you've heard of Marie Kondo uh, <laughs> and the KonMari method of uh, of uh, yes. of of <laughs> which which let me summarize as this. Look, I know she's a bit kooky and and there's a bit uh, it's a bit of a phenomenon on on Netflix or whatever. Um, mm. This, the 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 process the formula is quite simple really, uh, and it's kind of hilarious if you ever watch any of her episodes of uh, what she does with families who need to declutter uh, their their lives and their homes. Uh, usually, there's some structure. There's some structure to you know uh, get all your belongings. You know, if it comes to say clothes. There's a particular process there, and part of that is kind of what's happening here is documenting everything. In this case, she's just like, you know, get all your clothes and put them in the corner of that room or on on the bed or wherever. And that really, what that does, the first thing is it shows people, wow, we've accumulated so much crap. (laughs) And uh, and it really brings home the realisation that, I need to do something. So that's a bit like the the Alcoholics Anonymous 12-step program. First step, admit you've got a problem. And here, right now, what's happening with the NRL, we, we've got a problem. When you lay it all out and you look at the numbers, you look at the fact that the second in charge, Nick Weeks, has uh, is earning 900000 Who? Who is he? <laughs> do you know who he is? How is it that the second in charge of this organization is earning almost a million dollars? It's unbelievable. And so... The, things like that really have surfaced uh, through this uncovering of all these uh, of all these situations. So the other bit with the method, uh, the KonMari method, is it's about uh, you know looking at each item, literally going through every little thing. And for a financial person, it would be the equivalent of going line by line in your uh, in your ledger and and everything just to work out. Is this necessary? And she's got this funny thing, which has now become a meme, which is like, look at every item that you've got, whether it's a piece of clothing or a trinket or something, and and ask yourself the question, is this bringing me joy? Sparkle of joy, right? Is this bringing me joy? And if it's not bringing me joy, uh, say goodbye to it and put it in the chuck <laughs> pile or, or, or donate pile or whatever, whatever the case may be. So just to bring it back to here, Mm. What, what essentially that's about, as funny as that is and as silly as it is as a meme, is really about asking each part of this breakdown, financial breakdown, what's the purpose of that thing? Is that yep. serving the right purpose? That's to me what this is all about. Now, on this, if this is what Peter Volandis is suggesting and what he's doing, that's a great thing. And I'm glad that that he's doing it, and I'm glad someone is taking a bit of a, a truth serum here and being honest about what's happening. But let me ask you, just to just even one unpack it a little bit, because like I said, we could go on this forever. But one bit that stands out really obviously to me is, let me ask you this: if you look at an integrity unit, 
what do you think? Uh, and again, I don't have the facts in front of me, but let's just discuss me and you, Tish. If what do you think they're mostly spending their time on, in terms of uh, uh, you know indiscretions and things like that? What do you think is the major thing? Do you think that that they're uh, the the major purpose why they're there? Well, it's to well, it's interesting. What, what are they supposed to be policing generally? Like, I know that it's an integrity unit; it's got a wide yeah. reach. Well, it's supposed to be policing the clubs, in, I think. Yeah. But what in particular? That why did the you salary get, cap? The salary cap, right? And that's what I was getting at. So we all know that that's why they were brought in. That's the main yeah. thing. There, there, there is no need for seventeen investigators for for sixteen um, clubs for six <laughs> for sixteen clubs, and. It's but no no but it's not just the sixteen club no, but if you were looking at what's the rest of their brief, uh, drugs maybe, uh, you know violence prevention, uh, you know well do we really need a unit to deal with things like players player misbehaviour? No, not really. We never have in the past, and and in many ways the behaviour is just as bad as it was in the past. Uh, overall, right? So mm. that's obviously not working if that's the case. The salary cap is the main reason because that's the biggest financial risk to the entire sport, the reputation, reputational damage, etc. So if you look at it, that, okay, that's a salary. So that's, in my mind, the integrity unit has, is there to, to, to deal with salary cap. Now let's go back to what you were talking about earlier as well about salaries. And we've got, uh, you know, an issue with we've got other related things like uh, clubs uh, relying on poker machine income and their revenue is down. So the NRL uh, uh, support some of that with uh, top up payments. Right. Then we've got salaries of players and uh, we've we've now got the suggestion that we're going to the NRL is going to forcibly impose a cap on how big football departments can become. Why? Because they're spending money on, I don't know, gold-plated dumbbells. I don't know what they're doing with this money, but they're doing lots of gyms maybe, you know, hyperbaric chambers to kind of uh, aid recovery. Look, in my mind, all of these things are related. And the one thing that brings them all together is the fact that you've got a, a sport that's imposing a salary cap on a bunch of clubs now, we've spoken about this before, but I'm going to suggest that one of the things they should consider is cutting the amount of money that they're providing to clubs and allowing them, loosening the restrictions on other things, such as player payments. You know, remember when I was talking about the early 90s, how it was kind of a golden era, right? Yeah. Now, around that time, I don't actually remember exactly when, but around that time is when they started on this whole salary cap kind of thing which no doubt then related to the the super league war because players wanted to get more money and that was only a few years later prior to that we actually had a game that was growing and developing and expanding and we had no salary cap now some of the, our listeners will won't believe us you know rub your eyes clean out your ears yeah that's right we didn't have a salary cap at one point if you don't have a salary cap you don't need an integrity unit if you don't have a salary cap, you don't need the NRL paying uh, what's essentially like a stipend or, a, a, you know, a, a, I guess pocket money, <laughs> like a parent paying pocket money to to their children. Here you go. Here's $4.5 million 
spend it on 30 players and and et cetera, et cetera. Plus here are the conditions. You can't have more than $4.5 million on football departments, et cetera. To me, that all seems ridiculous. I think maybe what we need to do is to say, you know what, we'll give you this much money uh, based on the revenues, et cetera, some kind of fair calculation. And then what we'll do is the rest of it is up to you, how you spend it. Um, players are not restricted. If uh, if if a particular sporting organisation, uh, or, or sorry, uh, apparel, you know, like Nike or Adidas, wants to sponsor someone, go for it. You know what? It just means we're not paying the money; they're paying for it. Mm. I don't see what the problem is. I actually think we really knew, do, do need to take a step back and yep. think about these issues about the salary cap is causing so much. We are convoluting ourselves into a pretzel. <laughs> to to basically deal with a really simple problem that re- could resolve all this, which is let's get rid of the salary cap. Uh, maybe not completely. Maybe you can have some restrictions on some things, but let's get it to a point where we are not we are not kind of governing so many rules about how much a club can spend on this, that, the other. Because you know what happens when you've got so many rules? Like, can you imagine what happens when you've got so many taxation rules? What happens is the regular person can't run a business. They're going to need an accountant. So similarly, if you have such a complex set of rules in order to be run a business as part of the NRL, run a club, that you have to then tie yourselves into knots in order to meet the NRL's requirements, you know what's going to end up happening? You're going to end up either having clubs going under because they've mismanaged or you're going to have some of the cleverer ones hire people to get around the system and rot the system. And that's why <laughs> that's why you kind of want to relax a bit of the rules because uh, you actually are causing the the uh, the, the blowout the, of expenses, yeah. That's right. You're causing things to go underground and people to rot mm. the system. So anyway, that's a bit of a rant for me. But to me, this is the kind of conversation we need to be having because yep. – uh, and I'm I'm kind of glad I'm kind of hopeful in a way that Peter Volandis will be the kind of person who brings this to light and maybe uh, look, these are the con- conversations we were having you know 30 years ago when the salary cap was being introduced into the game uh, people were saying what's this about and you know it's a di- it was a different time back then but maybe now we need to look at it again because yep. I think that it's connected to a lot of the the woes of the game. Uh, and and it's just one thing. I'm just, it's just one suggestion, but it's something that has struck me as you've gone through that great list of uh, of very revealing figures there, Tish. But uh, look, that's my rant over. But I'll leave it to you to to you know maybe maybe uh, give us a final word. Okay. Well, final thought on this is uh, well, I do agree with you. The Mary Kondo is a good analogy because at the moment, um, you know. I think we need to get to Mary Kondo, but that, at the moment we're at <laughs> management, which is basically a zoo out there. You know what I mean? Um, so we got to get back to a, a bit more organised. But look, um, basics of eco- economics. There's that concept of a planned economy and a free market economy, right? And basically, there's no such. Uh, you can't have an economy that is at either end. You've got to have something in the middle. And I think at the moment. Um, I think the NRL has to think about where it sits in that sort of thing because I think it needs – I mean, there are certain things that the NRL needs to plan from the head office 
and there is a certain amount of responsibility they need to give to the free market, which is in this case the clubs. And I think at the moment the balance isn't right. Um, now the thing is, if you go more planned, you get to keep the clubs that you have at the moment because you plan everything for the clubs. But on the flip side, you probably don't make as much money. But if you go to the other point, you might lose some clubs if you go completely free. Um, but at the same time, right, you are probably going to have a much wealthier, uh, 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 you know, much wealthier competition because other entities like sponsorships and all that will be able to come in yeah. uh, if you're not policing those things. So I think the NRL has to work out which way it wants to go. And to be honest, I think either way it goes, it's actually going to be in the game's actually going to be in better hands. Um, and I think, yeah, and I think the final thing I've got to say is that, look, uh, before the Super League War, what a club was in those days is actually very different to what a club is now, only for the fact that now the NRL is actually spending a lot of money, put, pumping a lot of money into these clubs right now. Um, they weren't doing that before. But if you remember, they weren't doing that before. And clubs um, like Newtown, like Glebe, throughout rugby league history, we were losing clubs because of bad mismanagement. So it has to ask itself, the 16 entities that we have at the moment, do, do we want to keep them forever or are we want, do we want to get rid of the bad ones and, for the sake of the game? So, look, that's all the conversations the NRL needs to have. Um, you know, we, it's not a quick thing. It's it's going to be a long-term thing. But I think, yeah, if, if, if the land is Phil Rothfield, whoever is actually working on these things, let's hope that it is a seven-year plan. And this is why somebody who actually signs a, uh, you know, a multi-million dollar TV deal cannot leave the game straight away. Because once you sign that deal, you then need to be able to, over that seven years, you need to give us a plan on how to run the game. Because there's no point in just getting the contract and then expecting somebody else to spend it. That's where <laughs> we've gone wrong. Because uh, I think the last time we've had these sort of deals, we had changes in management straight after we signed the deal. And I think money was squandered that way. It's better to keep uh, a bit of consistency with this. Yeah, look, it's a bit like Brexit, isn't it? It's like it's easy to be the person who says, uh, you know, I've got I've got the first part of the deal done, but someone actually needs to implement it and execute it. So that's right. So yeah, <laughs> well done. Um, all right, let's move on to tackle number five. All right, so the UK Super League is about to restart as well uh, soon after the NRL. Tish, what is the details on that? Yeah, look, just announced uh, overnight, thirteen hours ago, but um, the Super League uh, has got a start date. Of June the 1st, um, so they've ha- been in talks with the UK government and it looks like that they are aiming for a uh, June 1st start. There'll be no spectators um, uh, at the first, obviously the first few uh, weeks or months of the competition. The government roadmap for the existing uh, lockdown is imposed, but the limit, you know, the limit of what is happening at the moment um, won't be affecting uh, Super League. So that's really good news for Super League, the fact that they are talking to the government to allow them to be able to, to start the game. Um, I think we've had lots of problems in the NRL when it comes to finances, but I think Super League is actually in a similar situation. And I think the big question for me is they've got two uh, teams, Catalans and Toronto. Uh, one's in a different hemisphere. Um, so they'll probably need to work out how those two clubs 
can play their games because that would be a challenge. Yeah, well, I mean, that's the thing. That's uh, It's going to be really tough. Um, they might – look, I, I think it's a kind of situation where you kind of need to throw the rule book out the window and just think, well, we're not going to go back to a normal situation where we're going to have transatlantic clubs, uh, potentially maybe just right off this year and mm. – and then focus efforts on other things, like maybe just have, try and focus on promoting Toronto and getting fans yep. interested in, you know, like put it this way. Uh, if you're going to keep paying players and they're not necessarily playing, what else could you do to get them to do the things that they wouldn't normally do? Well, think about it. What do they normally uh, not have time to do? It's the community outreach kind of thing. Well. Let me put it this way: if you're if you've got schools back back to normal, even during uh, a, a crisis, but which is easing in a way and under control in some countries, then uh, is it a risk to to bring some of those footy players to the schools to do a bit of a bit of coaching sessions and things like that? Not really. Why can't they do more of that? They've got more time. They're not playing games necessarily. Um, could they be doing more Zoom calls to teams or to, to to fans and kids and whatever? Yeah, they could be. So you could do a lot more, uh, you know, while you're waiting it out. But you could also maybe look at investing in the local areas. So, yes, maybe Catalans can't physically come to the UK um, to play a game. Why not let them do something to promote the game in their home city. Why not support yeah. them to do that? Why not uh, find another alternative way to do something? You know, have a exhibition game, Toronto versus uh, some other kind of Toronto-based team or Canada-based team. Just, you know, Toronto's already in the UK Super League. Why not just uh, build up the new Ottawa team? You know, have a Toronto versus Ottawa thing as a bit of a um, promotional activity. You know, there's so much they could do. Um, under these circumstances. But, yeah, what do you think, Tish? Yeah, look, I think that they should just hold off on those two teams. Um, and look, let's just start again 2021. I don't think they've lost that much. Well, I mean, Toronto hasn't won a game yet. Um, and you're right, look, maybe there's, they need more community support as it stands anyway. So this might be a good time to sort of, uh, you know, as you said, do the Zoom calls, go out, meet schools, you know, educate about rugby league, um, you know, uh, ha- have a bit of a, you know, get some more engagement, get some more fans doing, you know, uh, I don't know, doing celebrity spots or something like that. Just just making, um, you know, the people of Toronto aware of rugby league in, in a much better way. And I think as soon as you get that, and even our local junior development, because I think ultimately what will grow the game is getting a Canadian-born hero to be part of their club, and that's what they need to work on. Same, same with the French uh, rugby league as well. The more superstars that they could have from, like, locally from their country, that's actually what's going to push um, them moving forward. Why do you think Tonga is doing so well? Why do you think Samoa and these nations are going on? Because you know those nations support those, you know, homegrown players. And that's what's actually going to grow the game in 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 Canada. So I think if they focus on that first, I think that's what's going to cause that growth that we want to have. 
All right, let's move on to our last tackle, tackle number six. All right, what's up with the international game? Well, uh, look, you know, we've been talking about UK Super League and the impact on the NRL as well, but let's not forget the international game will also be impacted by this COVID crisis. Uh, while there are some difficulties, uh, some changes to happen, for instance, State of Origin is to be played after the October 25 NRL Grand Final and the UK Super League will run possibly even later into the year with obviously a late start as well. Uh, I think it's uh, widely accepted that the uh, the Kangaroo Tour that was meant to happen will be scrapped. However, uh, what's come into uh, in, in place, however, is some suggestions that there are maybe other things that could uh, be done in this uh, unique scenario. And, and that might mean something like, uh, you know, a three-test series between New Zealand and Tonga that could run concurrently with the Origin series. And maybe at the end of that, the winner of that uh, would play Australia, for instance. That would be pretty awesome. Um, yep. You know, and another thing that's happening is obviously to that, you know, the the fact that the, the schedule over the year has changed and will change for this year, that maybe it's an opportunity for the people in the NRL and Super League to talk about aligning their seasons a little bit more to create a genuine mm. international window. Now, as soon as I read that in uh, in whichever article, I think it was on the NRL.com, uh, I, uh, my ears went up because we've been talking about this for a while that, you know, at the very least, the two big professional competitions in rugby league, uh, you know, need to have some sort of alignment so that we can actually foster the international game by giving some space for, for players to go uh, and play and, uh, you know, uh, play with with their their fellow kind of teammates in their chosen country, etc. And and also to allow that to kind of breathe a little bit rather than have just one-off random things that then have to go back to the domestic competition. So um, there's other suggestions as well about a triple header uh, between Kiwis, Tonga, Fiji, Samoa, Papua New Guinea, Cook Islands, etc., um, instead of the end of season Oceania Cup, but anyway, there's a lot of other suggestions. But to me, the main thing that's of interest is the fact that that the U, the UK Super League and the NRL in Australia and, and New Zealand are going to be talking to each other about making sure that they can align things properly, so that they can actually focus on the international game. And at a time when we've seen Tonga do, do some great things and others as well, uh, this is probably the best news i've heard all year actually i mean in yeah. terms of what what could be a silver lining to uh uh what can be seen as a negative uh you know the scrapping of a kangaroo tour uh what are your thoughts tish final word well i love the idea of a new zealand tongan three three test series 2019 there were many games that i enjoyed but probably the game that i enjoyed the most is tonga versus australia that match where the tongans finally beat australia right what was it was that? Did they beat yeah. Australia or did they beat? Yeah, no, anyway. they did. They beat so Australia. Yeah, they did. They, they did. You know, and that is the most exciting thing that's been happening in rugby league is the emergence of these uh, new new nations and um, you know how well they're doing. So I think we really need to promote that, and I think that actually really grows the game at that international level, which is what we desperately need. So having competitions that, um, as you said, align start and finish dates are the same makes perfect sense. Um, obviously having breaks that are on at the same time as well, um, you know, for State of Origins and all that during the year is fantastic. Having that international window 
it's all needed. And I think it comes back to something even more globally because we talked about TV deal rights. But obviously one of the big things that a lot of sports are talking about is the uh, you know is the Netflix model, the um, you know subscription service model, you know approach to to sort of um, you know funding, and you know having this idea of having a rugby league streaming service where you could watch all the rugby league you ever want to your heart's content, you know, as rugby league fanatics like you and I, it sounds like a great idea, but the reality is globally there's not enough games and there's not enough interest in rugby league at a global level actually make that viable you know if you think about netflix netflix is in so many countries and has so many different movies and tv shows that it has a catalog of the nrl the super league combined don't have that so it's really important to grow the game internationally and i think um this alignment of the two um you know of the two major competitions as well as you know a, a strong focus out of this crisis of international rugby league is going to set us up so that maybe in, you know, uh, half a decade's time, we can actually see a viable streaming service um, or you know, we see international rugby league is firstly profitable, but on top of that, so is the idea of having a streaming service that is rugby league 24 um, seven. So, let's hope that we could get there. So and I've also heard that Tonga could be reinstated very soon as well from the International Rugby League, which I think is also a very good development um, because of the situations that they've had locally as well. Absolutely. All right. That's a great note to end an epic uh, podcast on. But before we go, let's uh, let's revisit the isolation quiz. Tish, hope you got your thinking cap on because I'm going to be testing you. So here we go. For those okay. of you playing at home, six questions. Our first one, yep. how many first grade premierships were won by Manly? Manly. Okay, so you're talking about Manly wearing your sea eagles. All together. Yeah, I'm, yeah, I'm going to say um, officially probably about seven. But, yeah. Seven? No. <laughs> the answer is eight. Oh! So no, close. it was close. 1972, 73, 76, 78, and then 87, 96, 2008, and 2011. So that's been nine years since uh, the last one. So there you go. Question two. Gotcha. Which UK Super League team has totally wicked stadium as its home ground? <laughs> Totally wicked. I'm pretty sure that is, um, <laughs> it's kind of ironic now, St. Helens. That's correct. St. Helens, yeah. very ironic there. Uh, which Melbourne Storm player was famously knocked out unconscious in the 99 grand final, which directly led to the first ever penalty try in a first grade grand final in Australia? Well, that's got to be Smith, not Cameron, but Craig. Craig Smith. That's right. Question four. Who said that? Uh, so the quote is, I'm 49, I've had a brain hemorrhage and a triple bypass, and I could still go out and play a reasonable game of rugby union, but I wouldn't last 30 seconds in rugby league. And the clue was, he's the only non-Australian to have ever coached a state of origin side. Did you know who that is? Oh, that's a tough question because I'm thinking about that breath. The coach is what puts me off a little bit, but I'm going to say, uh, I'm going to say, is it Malcolm Really? No, it's uh, Graham Lowe, or Sir Graham Lowe. So, who, uh, okay. Who, as Coach Queensland, right? Yeah, Queensland in 1991. Coach Queensland. Oh, there also, you go. And he's a New Zealander, so there you go. Uh, question five. Who captained Canterbury-Bankstown in the 88 grand final against Balmain? Now, I'm not sure how much you know of uh, of that grand final, Tish. That would have been a heartbreaking one for you. But here we go. 
A, Peter Tunks, B, Steve Folks, or C, Steve Mortimer? Yeah, look, I don't think Folksy was ever captain, so I'm going to say Steve Mortimer. No, actually, it was Peter Tunks. Uh, <laughs> Steve Mortimer was on the bench, would you believe? Oh, wow. <clears throat> yeah, I mean, how if you look at the lineup, how strong was that Canterbury side? Um, mm. Full of uh, amazing players. Lang Mac, Gillespie, Farrah, you know, all sorts of players like that. So there you go. Peter Tunks was the captain. I honestly didn't know that. So <laughs> that, that would have stumped me, that question. Um, and finally, who is the current captain of the Samoan National Rugby League team? Samoa, okay. Samoa, I think, uh, wouldn't it be uh, Josh Papali? No, it's actually Anthony Milford. What? Yeah. <laughs> he was the captain last time they played, so. Where they got destroyed by Fiji, right? That's the last I time. I think so, played. yeah, yeah. So, yeah. anyway, that's okay. Well, you know, that's it. So, all right. Well, hopefully, uh, how did you guys go out there? I must admit that was a bit of a hard one today. But, uh,. Mm. But, well, you know, we did sort of – some of them were a bit easier than others. But I uh, hope you enjoyed it. But next time we'll uh, see if I can make it a little bit easier. Look, and, yeah, so as I said, next time will be two weeks from now. So hopefully, um, you know, we'll know a bit more about the salary cap – or not the salary cap, the, the, the broadcast deal and other kinds of uh, issues that we'll have a bit more to sink, uh, sink our teeth into. But – Tish, what an epic episode we've got! We've gone through so much today. A uh, lot. Yeah. We, as we always say, rugby league, even during the pandemic, global health crisis, uh, yep. there's always something to talk about, isn't there? Even when it's not being played, there's just so much going on. So, yeah, uh, Tish, uh, any final words before we wrap up? Uh, look, uh, look! I think we've uh, said enough. It's been a great epic episode, as you said, Dr. T. But look, I'd like to thank yourself. I'd like to thank everybody out there for listening uh, as well. I hope you've enjoyed it as much as we have had bringing it to you. Don't forget to uh, you know, hit us up on Twitter. Hit us up on Facebook. Leave a review on iTunes. Um, you know, check out our website. Uh, even send us an email if you like at rlrepublic at gmail.com. But look, that's all the time that we have for this edition of the Rugby League Republic. We're your hosts, Tish and Dr. T. Join us next time on the Rugby League Republic. Bye for now.